I'd like to welcome those watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church, and if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And why don't we just pray right now? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for uh, loving us, saving us, rescuing us. Lord, I, uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be back here today with my church family uh, to get to preach. I pray that you'd help me, Lord. Um, guard the words that are coming out of my mouth. Keep me from error. Help me to say only what you want me to say. If something you don't want me to say, then don't let me say it. If there's something I need to say, then give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you just give us ears to hear today. And... Lord, we think of, as well, our, our leaders. We think of President Biden. We pray for wisdom for him. Lord, for um, the persecuted church, Leah Sherbu, Pastor Yusuf, Pastor Wang, Pastor John, for the Christians in North Korea and Afghanistan, in Nigeria, in Eritrea, in Somalia. And we remember those who are in chains as if we were there in chains right alongside them. Please help them today. Lord, for the, the church in Ukraine, for the church in Russia, I, I pray um, that during this time the gospel would be a source of hope for people amongst so much tragedy and death. For Vladimir Putin, I pray that you'd confuse and frustrate his plans. I also pray that you'd save him. So, Lord, today, once again, help us. Give us ears to hear. Free us from distraction. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right. So we're in John's Gospel. It's part 11. We're going to start in chapter 4. It's been a hot minute since we've been here. I'm hoping that I'll remember how to do this. But once again, part 11... Uh, this is the 11th sermon that I've preached in the Gospel of John. The 11th sermon, part 11. We're going to jump right into chapter 4. We've got a lot of verses to chew through. It's a big story. It's a good story. So, uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria, Keyword. we'll put a pause in it. What you need to understand is that there are essentially two routes north to Galilee that you can take from Judea if you're in the south. Chris, we have that map? So, Judea is in the blue, Samaria is in the purple, and above that will be the region of Galilee. You get two routes, pretty much. In Jesus' day, you can either go through Samaria to get to Galilee, or you can go around it. And if you go around it, it's going to take you a lot longer. But notice the text tells us he had to pass through Samaria in verse 4. He had to. This had to language is going to illustrate for us that this route to be taken for Jesus is not the result of geography. Like, hmm, I will just take the fastest route. I'll go straight through it. But, but rather, this was to be a divine appointment for him. And some might ask, well, why would Jesus or anyone else, for that matter, want to take a longer route and go around Samaria? 
And I don't know if you can see, the red route kind of has a beeline through it. There's a green route on the other side of the Jordan. You'd, you'd cross the Jordan River. It's running from north to south, up and down on your screen, and you'd actually go around it. So you said, well, why would you want to go around it? If you're just trying to make it your way to Galilee, you just take the path of least resistance. You go right through Samaria. Well, what you have to understand is there is a very complicated relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. This goes all the way back to the 8th century BC. There are two major biblical events. It's really difficult to overstate their significance to biblical history. And that is the two captivities that took place in 722 by the Assyrians taking the northern kingdom of Israel and in 586 taking the the Babylonians taking the southern kingdom of Judah. 586, that's of course when Daniel would have been taken. Daniel in the lion's den, yeah, he was taken into captivity. And yes, there were multiple deportations during the southern uh, <clears throat> removal of the Jews by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonians. But the, the first piece of this centers on the Assyrians taking the northern kingdom in 722. They captured it, and what they did is they deported really all the Jews who were of noble birth, any of the aristocrat types, the upper birth, the higher class, the middle class. They only left the poorest people there in the land, in the region. And then what they did, what the Assyrians liked to do, is they would take other people groups from other nations that they conquered, and they go and they drop them off just kind of like planting seeds in the ground. And those other people came into this region known as Samaria and they intermarried with the poor surviving Israelites there and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. Well, then you fast forward. After the exile of the southern kingdom, the Daniel one, the 586 one, the, the Babylonian exile, where they were in exile for some 70 years, when they return now, they view those people in Samaria as the children of these political rebels, these racial half-breeds whose religion had been corrupted. In fact, by 400 BC, the Samaritans actually made their own temple on Mount Gerizim. But the combination of these events fueled religious and theological animosities. So by the first century, the Samaritans actually developed their own religious heritage based on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the other books of the Hebrew Bible as canonical, with this continuing focus for the Samaritans, not on Jerusalem as the center for worship, but rather on Mount Gerizim. And interesting today, there's actually still a small group of Samaritans that survived to this day. So so this is the backdrop for today's story. It's critical to really feeling whatever emotion that we're about to feel as we go through it. So, verse 5 says, He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The site of Jacob's well, pretty accurate to this day. In fact, at various periods of church history, uh, it had been... um, destroyed this, the, the area by, by the Muslims. Today, the, the well itself sits in the, the shadow of a crypt of an unfinished Orthodox church. But this well, it was dug out in the ground, fed by underground springs. Till today, it's still reliable. But Jesus arrives here. Jacob's well, sixth hour. This would have been noon. Sixth hour is noon. And this is a really important detail because it means it would have been one of the very hottest parts of the day. And so it says in verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
It's the sixth hour. It's noon. It's the heat of the day. This is not when women typically would go to draw water. They would typically go early in the morning or they go later in the day because, well, it's, it's cooler. She comes right now. She comes at the hottest time. And, and the reason that she does, as we're going to learn momentarily, is because she kind of has to. She's an outcast. And so she's here at the well at the hottest time of the day because she's not welcome during the other times. She's not wanted. She's, she's sitting by herself in this kind of lunchroom type scenario alone. And some of you know what that's like. You're in a friend group one day, things are going well, and then something happens, and then you don't, you don't get invited anymore. And sometimes it's not just the friend group that shuns you. Some of you guys, you're a part of a family, and then something happens, and then all of a sudden you stop getting invited to these family events. That's the Samaritan woman. She has to come at noon during the heat of the day because that's when no one else would go. She has to go all by herself because of her social status, because of who she is, because she's been rejected. And what John who's writing this, what I think he does so well, what he does so terrifically is contrasting the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he was learned and he was powerful and he was respected and he was orthodox and he was theologically trained. And then the Samaritan woman who's unschooled. She's got no influence. She's despised. She's got a lot of baggage. And the bottom line is this. They both need Jesus as we're about to see. So verse 9 says this. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that, <laughs> you're a Jew, right? <laughs> how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Within a generation of this, Jewish leaders would actually codify a law in the Mishnah that, and I quote, all the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanliness, end quote. That's the sentiment in the first century. And she knows it. She knows it. The Samaritan woman knows she's an outcast among her own people. But among the Jews, man, that just adds a whole new level of disdain. And so when Jesus asks her for water, let alone that he even talks to her, it's quite puzzling to her. It would be like in our day and age, the relationship dynamic between the woman who doesn't vote your way, who thinks killing unborn kids is okay, who thinks... White people are all privileged and racist who thinks Christians are more dangerous than the Taliban or Boko Haram terrorists. But this is what Jesus does. Because this is who Jesus is. See, whether he's talking to a guy who is a religious aristocrat like Nicodemus or a Samaritan peasant woman who has made a mess of her life, Jesus has no issue breaking social norms, not to celebrate the sin in people's lives, but in order to save people from their sins. And so, as verse 10 continues, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink. 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The problem with the Samaritan woman is the problem with every unbeliever. And that is when she looks at Jesus, she doesn't recognize him for who he truly is. Jesus is saying that if this woman really knew her Bible, if she really knew what the Torah says and who it was that was speaking to her, her response would have been very, very different. She would have asked for living water. And this reference to living water, it's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, you go back to Jeremiah 2.13. I think we have it right here. But here's what it says. Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. Two. Two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, as if that wasn't bad enough. And then on top of that, they hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is, they have rejected the gift of God. And secondly, they've chosen something else to worship. Something else to find their satisfaction apart from the fountain of living waters. Apart from Jesus. And so, verse 11 The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's confused. She doesn't understand what Jesus means by living water, which is why she makes the reference to Jacob. No way this Jesus guy, she's thinking that I'm talking to, that he could be a bigger deal than the patriarch who acquired the well back in Genesis 33. So Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus is trying to explain to her something that the prophets of old had all looked forward to, a time when when living water would flow out of Jerusalem. In other words, this living water, it serves as a metaphor for the grace of God in giving eternal life. And so the woman says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The woman like Nicodemus continues to think on this purely uh, naturalistic plane as is made clear by what she says. Yeah, I'll take that water. I don't have to keep coming here every day because it's really hot. It's inconvenient. Uh, I'll take that. Sign me up for that. She, she still doesn't really get it or understand. Thinking only in purely naturalistic terms. So here's what Jesus says, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband. And come here. We've got this strange pivot here in verse 16. This, the Samaritan woman has failed to grasp who Jesus is. She has failed to understand the nature of living water. And by this question, it becomes clear she also has misunderstood the true dimensions of her own need. She thinks she needs water to drink, and that's it. And, and this is usually true with people today who don't think they need living water. In fact, there's such a focus today on physical health, not a big focus on spiritual health. Even in school, there's health classes. We've got reels, we've got videos all day long about diet and exercise, and yet there really isn't 
that much focus on spiritual health. There, there isn't a focus on the soul. There isn't a focus on what's really important and eternal. Both are important. One's just more important. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? See, living, living water is the satisfying eternal life given by Christ. And she doesn't get this. So Jesus pivots. And he says, go get your husband. Her response, verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Go get your husband. She says, oh, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. Jesus says, yeah, I know you're not married. You're hooking up and you're living with a guy, and this isn't the first time either. You've had multiple godless relationships in the past, which for her probably included divorces as well as other sexual partners that she shacked up with. So Jesus says, yes, I know you don't have a husband. See, when, when Jesus pivots, man, he pivots hard sometimes. See, even in this culture, even in rabbinic opinion, it, it disapproved of having more than three marriages, though they were legally permissible. And now we begin to understand why her own people, the Samaritans, why she's an outcast, why she comes to the well at the hottest time, and that's because she's avoiding all the other people. And so, we read, the woman said to him, sir, verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then, verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Some commentators feel like at this point in verse 20, she's trying to avoid this embarrassing and sensitive topic. She doesn't want to talk about the issue. Because it's always easier to talk about theology or to change the subject than to deal with the truth that is so personally distressing. And some of you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't like getting vulnerable. You don't like getting vulnerable with other Christians. You don't like going deep. You don't have, like having real conversations. And like the Samaritan woman, because it, it, it's embarrassing, right? So you deflect. You avoid. You do anything but actually talk about the real issue, even though the real issue is the problem in your life. She's like, let's talk about theology. That's not the issue. Well, that's easier for her. It's less embarrassing for her. But deflecting like that doesn't get rid of the root problem in her life. So here's what Jesus says. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So, he said to her, verse 21, Woman, means something very different in our English. We talked about this when Jesus was addressing his mother at the wedding of Cana. We say, woman, it's kind of very disrespectful. Uh, the best way for me to explain this is it's very similar when he would have said it as madam. He says, madam, believe me. And when he says believe me, this is not an invitation to be a Christian. Rather, it's an assertion. He's saying, madam, I'm telling you the truth. 
An hour is coming. And when John, who's writing the story, when he uses that phrase, an hour is coming, whenever it's used and it's unqualified, it always is a reference to his death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus is saying, there is not much benefit, madam, for us to debate which temple site is the correct one, since both sites are about to be bypassed by those who truly worship the Father. So let's get back on topic. Let's get back on topic. And yet he does address the her question. He's going to talk about this issue and he's going to be very, very clear with her. He says, you can be devoted, miss, to the wrong thing. You can worship the wrong thing. You can even worship the wrong God and thinking that you're worshiping the right God and not only is that unhelpful, it leads to death. See, this woman has wholeheartedly devoted herself to the wrong God and the culture would say, well, as long as she believes, as long as it's true for her, that's all that matters. Jesus makes it clear. No, it's not. Not at all. And then he goes on and he says, but the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in, this, in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Bottom line is this, true worshipers are not identified by where they worship, but who they worship. And they're further characterized by those who worship the Father in spirit and truth. And if you grew up in the church like me, you probably heard that phrase. Spirit and truth, spirit and truth. I heard a lot. That's how we're supposed to worship. What does that actually mean? I don't know. That's just something we say. Maybe you can relate to that. That's how it was for me. So here's what he means. You, 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 you have bones. You have skin. You have limbs. You have You have organs. All those things characterize you. God the Father doesn't have those things. He is invisible and divine unless he chooses to reveal himself as opposed to humans. Thus, he's characterized as spirit. That's because that's what he's like. The book of Revelation, Revelation 21-22, concludes with a vision of the consummated kingdom, the new Jerusalem in which there is no temple to be found because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So if he is the true temple, as he also says in John 2, 19-22, that means worship can only take place in and through Jesus. You could say to worship in spirit and truth is essentially God-centered. And he tells us that he's seeking people to worship him. He's seeking people. It's important that we worship God. It is. But it's critical that we worship God in the right way. That's what the truth part of the phrase means, in spirit and in truth. And if you don't get the truth part, you, you could easily worship the wrong thing. You could easily worship the wrong God or a false God. So, so let me clarify a few things when it comes to worship. Worship isn't just music. It's lifestyle. It can be singing. It can be a lot of other things too. But that all requires the Bible, to being open to know what truth is. In fact, I'd argue worship is not part of what you do. Worship is what you always should be doing. And, and some people will make the mistake of worshiping their jobs or their sports teams or their houses or their kids or their families or their boyfriends or their girlfriends. You see, it's, it's not an issue if you worship. It's really an issue of 
who you worship and how you worship. And this woman has found relationship after relationship to make her whole and worship and idolize and has it delivered for her? Not at all. Relationships haven't made things better for her. They've, they've actually made things much worse. And some people will worship relationships and some people will worship food or alcohol. And yet none of those things ever quench our thirst because they weren't designed to. It's only the living water that Jesus offers that has the ability to meet our deepest needs and desires. And so he says, he says, verse 25, the woman said to him, I, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. he. He pulls back the curtain. He drops the bombshell that we've been waiting for. He tells her, I'm the person you've been waiting for. And I think the, the question worth dwelling on is how, how do you even approach a situation like this and some would approach it like the people the ladies of her town who treat her like an outcast they don't want to help her they don't care if she changes they probably don't believe she can change how do you approach a situation like this some might say she just needs to pick up her flag go to the parade wave it around find people who will accept her and celebrate her because after all who are you to judge what she needs is for you to celebrate and affirm the lifestyle she's chosen and then we have the example of Jesus, and what does he do? Neither does he treat her like an outcast, nor does he encourage her sinful behavior, but rather points her to the truth, the truth that's found in him, in, in real living water. That is the correct approach. And so verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a, a woman but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And in verse 27, we, we see even his disciples are a little, little prejudiced. In fact, many Jews, though, though not all, held that for a rabbi to talk to a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time and at worst a diversion of the study of the Torah and therefore potentially a great evil that could lead to hell itself. Some rabbis went so far to suggest to provide their daughters with a knowledge of the Torah was as inappropriate as to sell them into prostitution. And add to the fact that this woman was a Samaritan, I think the disciples' surprise is at least somewhat understandable. And I, I say that because we love to look at others, even like, the disciples, and be like, wow, they were super sexist and prejudiced and awful people because we live in this culture that loves to virtue signal and pretend that we have no faults of our own and that our society has evolved and is more progressive and better than all the others, and that's just not true. Were the disciples prejudiced? Yes, of course. Is that wrong? Yes, of course. Is it more understandable when viewing it through a first century lens than a pride-filled, arrogant 2023 lens? Yeah, you betcha. And so, verse 28 the woman left her water jar. This is where it gets good, guys. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. She left her water jar. Did, 
Did you catch that? She, the Samaritan woman leaves her water jar. The one thing she needed the most is no longer the most important thing. See, it's amazing when you meet Jesus. Stuff you cared about, you just drop. Stuff you thought you had to have isn't as important any longer. And what does she do? She goes and tells everyone in the town, everyone who knows that she's a little hussy, who knows she's a Proverbs 7 woman, all the people who previously she's tried to avoid, and now she goes and tells them about Jesus. And the reason that this is so significant is because some people, they'll get so discouraged from evangelism because they don't know much or because of their past sins. And the truth is, in order to witness, you don't need to know much. You just need to know Jesus. The woman's life is a hot mess when she meets Jesus. She doesn't care anymore. Now it's her testimony. She's like this Jesus guy. He told me about myself. And no one could have known the things that he told me unless they were God. See, your mess is part of your testimony. This includes your hurts and your pains and your foolishness and your sin. All of this is a part of your story. And here's why it's important. It's important because it allows others to have hope and encouragement in their mess. Like, if this woman can come and meet Jesus in the midst of her crisis, man, this is good news for everybody because everyone is a hot mess at some point or another in their lives. And so... Verse 31 says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Did, did you guys bring him? Excuse me, sir. Did, did you bring him something to eat? Did, did you? I, I didn't bring it. Did you? I, then where did he get the food from? Has anyone brought him something to eat? That's the question they're asking. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' disciples, <laughs> they, are, they are thinking of literal food just as quickly as the Samaritan woman was thinking of literal water. And yet for Jesus, his point is very, very simple. There is something more important at play here. This was more important. This was more significant. This was more fulfilling than any food that the disciples could offer him. And so verse 35, he tells them, Gentlemen, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. A lot of people think he says it four months because it would have been, at this time, dated four months out from the harvest. He says, Gentlemen, this is what you'd say, right? The harvest is in four months. The, the harvest is a metaphor for evangelism. It's a metaphor for living water. It's a metaphor for knowing Jesus. Jesus is saying the time is now. Not after dinner. Right now. Not four months from now. Right now. Not when your schedule gets lighter. Right now. When? Right now. And many of us, what we'll do is we'll just make excuses. We've got four more months until the harvest. Like how many of us do that? Now's not really a good time, but can I do it later? I'll share the gospel with this person the next time I see them. I'll bring up God in the conversation that the next time I see them. I'll invite them to a church gathering the next time I see them. Jesus would tell you, not later, not after dinner, not four months from now, right now. The fields are white for the harvest right now. So stop making excuses. Stop with the apathy because there are literally thousands of people around us. Just like this broken Samaritan woman jumping from relationship to relationship to find satisfaction who need hope, who need living water, who need Jesus. So, 
Already, he says, verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The reaper isn't apathetic to what's happening around him. The reaper is not waiting for the harvest because Jesus already said, it's here, it's game time, right now. Not later, right now. And many Samaritans from that town, verse 39, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Many more believed because of his word. But it all started in verse 39. They believed because of the woman's testimony. Because of the woman's testimony. Because of the Samaritan woman's testimony. People are getting saved and they're meeting Jesus because of this woman's baggage-filled Christ-redeemed story. And this is why it's all the more critical not to wait four more months until the harvest. Not to make excuses. Why we can't tell others about Jesus right now. And this is why starting the harvest now has got to happen. That we might not miss this opportunity. And people will say things like, I can't or I'm afraid or others won't listen to me. They'll say things like, I'm not good at this. I'm scared. I'm too young. I'm too old. I was divorced. I've never been married. I was really promiscuous in my past. And what do we see from the story of the Samaritan woman? None of that matters. What matters is meeting Jesus and helping others to meet him. And so, verse 40, the Samaritans came and they're like, hey, please stay with us. And he stayed two more days, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. They asked him to stay. That's crazy, right? That the Samaritan should ask Jesus, a non-Samaritan, to stay with them. But it, it serves to illustrate that Their confidence and belief is that he was who he said he was, the Savior of the world. And notice in verse 42, 42, it says, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. Samaritan woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. In other words, that shouldn't be understood in some type of disparaging way against her or her testimony, but rather to confirm it. In other words, they have now heard for themselves and they've judged her witness to be true. 43. And after two days He departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, keyword, welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. It's interesting, I think. He says, uh, uh, no prophet, or rather a prophet, has no honor in his hometown. And then the very next verse, the Galileans welcomed him. Did did you catch that? I know you all caught it. Right? I could call any one of you right now in the middle of the service. You have the answer for me, what you caught. But I thought that was interesting nonetheless. A prophet has no honor in his hometown, and the Galileans welcomed him. Nazareth is in, what's that geographical place that starts with a G and ends with an Galilee? Nazareth is in Galilee. 
And in verse 45, we're told the Galileans welcome him. He just said a prophet has no honor in his hometown. How do you harmonize that? Well, some have argued that his hometown was technically where he was born. That's how you could harmonize it. So he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. All right. Others have proposed that his spiritual hometown was in Jerusalem in attempting to kind of explain the text. And yet, what I think we see here when he arrives, how the Galileans welcomed him, is exactly what's happening. And the key word in all of this is welcomed. You see, the, the Galileans welcomed Jesus. But the question then becomes is, how do they welcome him? And the answer is they did not welcome him as Messiah. They did not welcome him as Savior of the world like the Samaritans. But rather, they welcomed him because they saw him do a bunch of cool stuff at the, at the feast in Jerusalem. And, and we know how Jesus feels about this. We know how he feels about this type of welcome because he said so two chapters ago, back in John chapter 2, 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when he, they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew all people. In other words, he knew what was in their hearts. He knew the type of phony and fake faith they had. And therein lies the contrast between the phony faith of the Galileans that is only ready to welcome Jesus so long as he puts on a show and does entertaining and beneficial stuff for them versus the real faith of the Samaritans who are ready to welcome him, the Savior of the world. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Because some of you know people like this. They're the type of people who will only like you so long as you're only doing stuff for them, or buying them stuff, or, or making it all about them. That's the Galileans. In other words, it's possible for someone to have faith that desires the cure, but could care less about the physician who administered it. See, when John tells us the Galileans welcome him, the context he is developing in the following verses and chapters reveal this to be true, in a sense, that they welcomed him. The Samaritan woman... Well, she's worshiping the wrong thing in this story. She's worshiping the wrong God. She's going through guy after guy, getting married, getting divorced, dating, hooking up, shacking up, and none of it ever satisfies her. For others, it's wrong girl after wrong girl after wrong girl. For others, it's worship of food or alcohol or, or you name it. This was the Samaritan woman's way of life. A broken, endless chain of never satisfying relationships. And yet in our culture, we would have said of the Samaritan woman who's living with her boyfriend and went through five other guys prior to that, we would have said, wow, she had a busy first semester at college. Our culture would have said, well, she's just finding herself. She's just getting to know her body and, and, and dislikes and dislikes. She's so sexually empowered. This girl is, and this girl is courageous. And then Jesus shows up, and he doesn't affirm her. He doesn't celebrate her sin. He's there for one reason, to give her living water. But to do that, he has to expose her sin, to force her to deal with the real issue, to show her a need, a thirst that she doesn't even know exists. This is what Jesus does because nothing's hidden from him. He knows you completely, including your past and your sin and your shame that for some of you, you're still carrying with you. And it's burning you down. But because of pride or embarrassment, you continue to hold it despite the fact that Jesus already knows about it because he knows you just as well as he knows the Samaritan woman. And the truth is, you can never have a healthy relationship with anyone until you have one with Jesus. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you, and I thank you, God, that you know us so well.
You know us so well. You know us just as well as the Samaritan woman who was trying to hide behind theological conversations and deflect and never get to the real issue in her life, the real problem in her life. Lord, I I pray that you would help us right now, those hearing my voice right now, that whatever things that we think are secret, that we're trying to keep under wraps, Lord, that we would not be like her and deflect, 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 but that we would just give it to you because you already know, because you already died for those things. Whatever the issue, whatever the shame, whatever the burden, Lord, there is freedom in you, freedom that this woman found in you, freedom that, Lord, I want everyone in this room and listening right now to find in you. That's my prayer. We pray this, Jesus, in your great name, amen.